trials here. He will hold me fast. Isn't that an awesome song? Why do we need to be held fast? Because at times it's hard and it's difficult and we doubt. Just like Tevia. I'm not sure I want to be chosen today, you know. This is a hard time. If you've never seen Fiddler on the Roof, by the way, you need to watch that. That was back when they actually made quality film, you know. But it was about struggle. It was about change. It was about hardship. It was about a man who is trying to hang on to his Jewish heritage in the midst of turmoil and difficulty. Not only in government levels, but in his personal work levels. His horse went lame and he pulls the cart now himself. All right. And then his daughter falls in love with a Gentile and it is just disruption and difficulty and hardship. What happens when the joy of God's call and the exciting expectation of being used by him so much so that it can hardly be contained. We're so excited about what is God is going to do. But that is only met with discouragement, hardship, and outcomes that seem that can only be defined as failure. How do, we, how do we deal with that? It can be a marriage. It can be a ministry. Like going into the pastor to becoming a missionary or a Sunday school teacher. Starting up, with, uh, starting up a new church or heading off to Bible college or seminary. Starting a family. The list contains any Christian venture that is embraced by us as God's specific calling. And yet that specific calling seems to fall flat on its face in failure. And we start looking for the exit door, feeling defeated, useless, and doubting if we were ever called at all. And, and perhaps worst of all, our soul is scarred. And we purpose to never do that again. For some time, countryside uh, seemed to be a place where former pastors and missionaries ended up. Some of the ones who've been around here longer remember that. That we seem to have a, 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 a regular supply of, of guys who were pastors or people who were missionaries. And they've come out of very difficult ministries. Things that they probably feel like they were just absolutely useless. It was a failure. And they ended up at Countryside. They were beaten down. They were discouraged. They were untrusting of relationships with others. They didn't want to serve in any aspect of the church. They didn't want to be noticed. They wanted a place to come 
where they could lick their wounds and find a place at Jesus' feet where they might find purpose and be loved again because they didn't feel that then, right now, as they came through our doors. If this congregation does anything well, it knows how to love and encourage people. I've often thought of you all (laughs) as being one of our effective arms of ministry at Countryside. Our church family is an arm of ministry at Countryside. Oh, I think good preaching is good, and I think music is great, and I think that, you know, small groups and all the things, those are wonderful things. But when it comes down to touching the lives of people, you're going to do that more than any of us are, and you've done it very well. Through patient love and encouragement, we saw numbers, numbers of these broken servants of God renewed and some of them went on back into ministry could you believe it you know it's like saying okay round two let's do this when we think about serving God when we think about you know those of you who are believers today and I'm not confident that all of you are I don't know many of you whether you've made that personal commitment to Jesus whether you receive that gift that he's given to us. I was in conversation on the phone with someone this past week, and they were saying that they've been trying to witness to this person, and they just don't seem to get it that they have to receive Jesus. And I said, you need to put that in the context of a gift. The Bible does. Let's use that. And I shared with them something that I did quite often, have done quite often, when I am sharing Christ with somebody. And at that, this is a little before cell phones that I developed this or used this. And I'd have a watch on. I don't even wear a watch anymore. But I have a watch. And, I would, and it was a nice watch. And I took that watch off and I would hold it out in front of them. And I could say, no, what if, what if I told you today that this is a great watch? And I love this watch. And I'd like to give it to you. And you tell me, oh, that's a beautiful watch. I've never had a watch like that before. That's a gracious and wonderful thing. And I just can't believe that anyone would be so kind as to give me that watch. And then you get up and you walk out. And I'm still holding the watch. Whose watch is it? Well, they say, well, it would still be your watch. That's right, because what do you have to do to get it? Well, I'd have to take it. Yes, thank you. That's the point. It has to be received. The gift has to be received. I don't even know where I was going with that. We can just pray and be done. Not so lucky. We're talking about facing trials and hardships and difficulties and ministering to people and trying to find ways to help them see the truth of God's word. 
And we want that to be joyful and successful. We want that to be Hebrews 11, 33. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of success and victory. Charge. But don't forget verse 34. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. What about them? We don't go home to our folks and say, Mom and Dad, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I think I'm going to go get flogged. I think I'm going to be put in prison. You'll never see me again. Sometimes the act of obedience and you do everything right and you still end up in a hardship and a difficulty and what the world would call a failure. What do we do with that? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 13. You're going to turn your Bibles 13. Some of you who've been in your Bibles for a while will say, okay, great, another, another message about Samson. No, this is not a message about Samson. This is a message about his mom and dad. The time of Judges is probably the darkest period of Israel's history. And they had some dark periods, let me tell you. But probably nothing as broken and as wicked and as desperate as the time of the Judges. And in chapter 13, we find that the, the angel of the Lord interrupts the life of a barren couple. They were living out their days, accepting the reality that they would have no children. Having no children in that day was a shame. It was a disgrace. Or as Hannah put it, my affliction. Just as a side note for your thinking later on, we're introduced to... Three, and I'm going to use this word in quotations, three barren women in the book of Judges. One of them is in chapter 13, Manoah's wife. We don't get her name. Manoah's wife. A second barren woman in the time of the Judges was Naomi, the book of Ruth, right? Oh, he said, oh, wait, wait, you, you can't, that's why I put barren in quotes. You can't put Naomi in, in that state because she had a husband and two sons. Not when she came back to Israel, she didn't. Her husband and two sons died in Moab. And she came back as a barren woman with no hope 
And she came into the town of Bethlehem and she said, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. The third barren woman that we find during the period of the judges is Hannah in 1 Samuel. All three of these women were childless and hopeless. And Naomi, through the work of God's grace and blessing, would see her heir to become the greatest king in the history of Israel, King David. And Hannah would see her son of blessing and miracle to become one of the greatest prophets slash judges in the history of Israel, Samuel. But what about Manoah's wife in Judges chapter 13? Well, they were thumping along with life and feeling like they would never have a, uh, a son and they were going to die childless. And again, that was just a really a tragic thing in that day. And an angel, or what Manoah's wife thinks must be an angel, appears to her. All right, let me pick up the text here before I put the uh, passages I want away here. Beginning in verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful. And drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his, come upon his head. I always have regretted uh, not knowing the Bible as well as I should have when I was young, all right, as a teenager, because I would love this text. I tell people all the time, I grew up in the 60s, but I did not participate. My dad was a pastor. And I will say to you at that time, there was a compelling part of me that wished my hair was a little bit longer, that I didn't look like G.I. Joe, you know, which was the standard haircut of the day for me. Well, see, see, this is a special calling of God. He's a Nazarite. I'll be a Nazarite. I can let my hair grow, right, Dad? No. That's... But at least I would have had a case, which I did had, I had none before. All right, continuing on. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to uh, save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was, was like that the, of the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent once again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. 
And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is to be his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything, uh, any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. And I'm going to add verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. The message that the woman had as she comes back to her husband, having met the messenger of God initially alone in the field, his message was, you will have a son too. He will be a Nazarite from conception. Very important point there. From conception. Number three, he will save Israel from the Philistines. And she goes and tells her husband. I talked with someone today. He might have been an angel. I don't know. He didn't give me his name. You kind of wonder if maybe Manoah kind of raised his eyebrows, you know, and gave her one of these looks. Like, you talk to who? We, we find out in Samuel that in this day, in the time of the judges, the word of the Lord was rare. Was rare. God did not do a lot of announcing and speaking to the people during the time of the judges. And his wife just came home suggesting she had a conversation with, an as, with, with, uh, with a, a messenger from God. She quickly continues her message. You're going to have a son, a Nazarite from conception to death. But it's interesting to note in the text, and you can ponder on this later, that she did not tell him that he was going to be a deliverer, a judge to the Philistines. Kind of interesting that that didn't get included. Manoah prays for another visitation, and it is granted. And the first thing that Manoah does... The angel appears to, to his wife. She comes gets him. He's here again. Okay, he runs over there. The first inquiry that he has is, what is his mission? That is the modern equivalent of a father buying for his infant son a football. All right? The infant son isn't going to use a football. Right now, but that's the hope, that's the expectation, that's the desire. He's, I, I can already see myself sitting in the stands yelling and cheering. And What's his mission? What great thing is this, is this son that you're promising us going to do? I just want you to begin to get a feel for the anticipation and the excitement 
that is in this family who had already come to terms with they would die and never have a child. And now God is announcing to them there's going to be a son. What's his mission? Now, I didn't read the whole text. This is not a sermon about Samson. But they actually bring a food offering, and the angel has them make it an offering, and the angel ascends in the smoke. So there's no, there's no real doubt that we're dealing with not just the crazy guy next door. All right? This was a visitation from God. Can you imagine... Can you imagine the excitement in that home? Can you see them purging their house of anything that would be unclean? Anything that would be defiling? How far did it go? I don't know. But there's going to be great care. And I think that probably... What Manoah's wife was going to go through, Manoah's going to go through. You're done with the wine until this baby comes. It's not going to be anything in our house. We're going to make it exactly as the way. And she starts talking about painting the spare room for a nursery, and they make plans to buy swaddling clothes and other infant necessities. And she starts to register on her favorite. No, they don't do that back then, did they? Well, you get the idea that there's this plan, there's this desire, there's this building expectation. Can it be possible that we're going to be blessed with a son from God who is to be separated unto him and perform a great service for the nation of Israel, more than they could ask or dream of? In the same way that young Christians, young Christian couples excited about having the opportunity to go to Bible school. I was in Bible school as a single guy, young, right out of high school. There were guys that were in Bible school that were middle-aged. They sold everything they had because they believed that it was God's will that they be there. They made immense sacrifices in their life. And numbers of them had families already. And they sold everything and they went to Bible college with this hope and anticipation and thrill. Or a young couple that gets called to a church as a pastor this is what had been on their heart their whole lives. And now, now there was a church that's willing to have them come and they're full of excitement and joy. They've been accepted by a mission board. They've raised their support. Another couple finding a church to attend. They've moved into a new area, find a church to attend. They're excited to find a church to attend. You know how hard it is to find a church to attend? For years and years here at Countryside, I would have people. Yeah, they were people. 
Some of them were students. I was going to make a distinction between people and students. But they would come to me and they, and they would say, this is so awesome to be here. I had one student tell me, you guys actually use the Bible. And when my wife and I semi-retired, I didn't understand that. I didn't think there was anything special about countryside until I semi-retired and my wife and I went to Florida and it has been an incredibly difficult effort to try to find a church family to minister in. I'm not a guy that wants to sit in the pew and eat candy cane cotton candy and popcorn. I want, I want some meat. You know what I'm saying? Take me to the word and tell me something true that God has to say. And I didn't realize that that is not often spoken. There's all kinds of things as God calls his people to service or to be in a place or to participate in a ministry, or, or to have children and raise them in godly ways that we have great hopes and expectations and desires. That may not turn out the way you wanted. Even to the extent of some young man or young lady coming and says, I found the person God wants me to marry. I think this is the one that God wants for me. I hope and pray that it is. But if I'm involved, I'm going to put them through the ringer. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't want that one truly seeking God's will to find it to be a desert experience. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Go to chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Did I ever give you the first point of our sermon? How unpastoral of me. A joyful expectation. I just realized as I'm ready to give you the second point. I don't think I ever gave you the first point. A joyful expectation. 
And now we come to the second point, a bitter and difficult experience. Samson, upon becoming a young man, began to have an attraction to Philistia and at least her women. This, I don't want this to be a distraction, but look at chapter 13, verse 25. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him, that is Samson, in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. I don't, want to, I don't want us to get bogged down into this discussion because it can get a little theologically deep and that's not my intent. I just want to say this. I find it interesting that some commentaries, it's, I think it's a pattern for all of us. We want to try to see the best side possible for these biblical characters, all right? And we have examples in the Bible of godly men who do things that weren't so godly and we kind of find ourselves trying to defend that behavior instead of saying, well, they were wrong. They were wrong there, in my opinion. Because here's a surprise note. You and I are not infallible. We are not perfect and we make mistakes. And here we find at the end of chapter 13, the spirit of God moving on Samson. And what a commentary that I read on said, well, it probably says that there was a beginning of an enmity between Samson and the Philistines, you know, that would end up in him being, you know, aggressive toward them. And I'm saying the very next thing we find, remember, there's no chapter of verse divisions in the original text. The very next thing after the spirit of God moves in Samson's life, he's down in Philistia, finding a, a gal that he thinks he wants to marry. How does that happen? I'm sure it was not in the plans of Manoah and his wife that the kinds of aggression and assault that would take place between Samson and the nation of Philistia would not have as its core revengeful behavior. And that's the way it's going to turn out. I'm sure that his parents thought he's going to march under the banner of the Lord and he's going to assault the wickedness and depravity of the nation of Philistia and set us free. Praise God. So I want you to feel the pain and the heartache and the fear that his parents tried to deal with in the life of their son. And we see it. We see it in the verse that said, is there not a woman among our daughters, the daughters of our nation, 
What's behind that sorrowful statement? Do you know what your mother and I went through to make sure that you were holy and set apart unto God from the moment of your conception so that you could be used by God in a mighty way and now you want to marry a woman from Philistia? I was uh, remembering as I was working on this a television program that I, as a young person, a teenager, I was always interested in, and I think it came on on Saturday on ABC. I think it was called ABC Sports or ABC something, and it always opened with the thrill of victory and what? And the agony of defeat. Do you remember that? Yeah, how, how could you get that skier out of you, that long jumper? I mean, I've never seen a wipeout that bad in my entire life. But that thing captivated me, and it showed both the great successes of that week in sports and the great failures. Now, I don't want to be so black and white here, but I think that th this is what's going on with Monona's wife is the agony of defeat. There's another phrase that came to mind as I was working on this, and this is some, out of some material that Countryside came across many years ago. I know, Bob Thompson, you were involved in, in that material and using it, and it was the birth of a vision, the death of a vision. I, I saw Bob earlier. There you go. Do you remember that? you remember that? And that's a concept that's kind of interesting because I, I do think that we see that pattern at times in Scripture, the birth of a vision, the death of a vision, the rebirth of a vision. And this is the announcement of his birth, the birth of a vision. This passage is the death of a vision. This is not how it's supposed to work. Samson was to go down and single-handedly defeat the Philistines and then return and lead his people to God. And you if you look closely, can see the tears in their eyes and the lump in their throat and the ache in their heart as their son of promise says defiantly, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. If you go to the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse... The, condemn, the condemnation of Almighty God on this period of time was this verse. And everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. You see how that rings here with this passage? I don't care what you think, Mom and Dad. I'm doing this because it's right for me. His father and mother make their first trip down to Philistia in verse 5. His father makes a second trip to Philistia. The first trip was to determine if her parents 
we're going to accept Samson's offer of marriage. The second trip would be probably to work out the details and the definitive actions, actions of that. Both of those, I think, painful experiences for Manoah and his wife. The second trip is verse 10 down to Philistia. Now we know Samson's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring judgment upon the Philistines. Their son, a Nazarite, and, and by the way, and I said it earlier, I'll say it again, all of his judgment is motivated by revenge. The, the, Samson, the Nazarite from birth, gets involved with gambling and is cheated out of victory, and 30 Philistines die as he vents his anger. Number two, Samson's betrothed is given to another, and Samson destroys, destroys the harvest of the Philistines. Number three, Samson, the Philistines take revenge on his betrothed and her father, and they burn them to death, and Samson strikes the Philistines' hip and thigh in revenge. Doesn't give us a tally, but it suggests to us it was a slaughter. And now the Philistines hunt down Samson, and when they find him, he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. These are all revengeful. These are all out of acts of things that you've done me wrong and you're going to pay. <laughs> the statement that I want is when young David picked up the stone out of the brook and put it in his sling. And I'll just paraphrase it. But we're not going to let some uncircumcised Philistine assault the God, our God, without some action. All right? That's, I mean, that was the kind of response. You're going to meet your day today. And the giant fell. That's what we want. We want people to go forth in the name of God for the glory of God and have great success. And what happens when it doesn't? When it doesn't seem like the success will come. Number five, and then Delilah. The Bible says he loved a woman. Then Delilah. The Philistines commissioned her to find the secret of his strength and discover it's in his hair, the symbol of his calling as a Nazarite. And Samson is taken, his eyes are gouged out, and he's shackled to a grain mill. The hope of Israel is doing the work of a beast of burden. Point number three, an agonizing exit. I think it's chapter 16. I don't know what my computer did. There aren't 167 chapters in Judges. Chapter 16, let's look at verse 23, and we'll trust that's it. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. Yep, we're here. 
and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, and, and for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them, and he made them stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars of which the house rests, that I may lean against them. There's about 3,000 people in the house. I'm going to not read every word so we, we can make this. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the... Isn't that interesting word he uses there? That's been the story of his, of his work all along, his vengeance. That I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And you know what happens. It's almost as though the pain is too unbearable that God gives us this this bit of hope. That bit of hope comes out of verse 22 of chapter 16, of chapter 16, and it says, as he's working this grinding, blinded, working, running this mill, this grinding mill, but the hair of his head began to grow again. (laughs) That's that's cool. It's kind of God saying, it ain't over till it's over. There's still something going to be happening here. Read on. The picture of a blinded, dirty, broken man being mocked by the godless Philistine seems to be a highlighting of a life that had failed God. But in this moment, in the culmination of dismal defeat, Samson asked to feel the pillars. And then he does something absolutely remarkable. What is that? He prays. There are two times in this story that Samuel or that Samson prays. One is when he has defeated the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey and he's ready to die of thirst and he asks God for water. That's number one and this is number two. And in this prayer, God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Samson acknowledges his call from God. Samson acknowledges his dependence upon God. And then he says, let me die with the Philistines. I didn't read Verse 31, and I want to read that, and then we'll wrap this up. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. 
he had judged Israel 20 years. The third trip of the family to come down into Philistia, the land of their enemy, the land that they hated, was to claim the body, the disfigured, broken, mangled body. And they're going to take him home and they're going to put him in the tomb, Manoah's tomb. Did that mean that Manoah had already died? I don't know. It could have been the family tomb and Manoah was still alive. We don't know. But then the next question is, was Manoah's wife still alive? Was she part of this? And did she reflect on this way down into Philistia again? The hopes that they had, the expectations that were theirs of this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. This is going to be such a blessing. And it was a hardship on that couple. It was painful for them. So I'm going to give you a handful of takeaways. The, the notes end there because I didn't want, I wanted you to just think about these next things and not have to write, write anything down. I want you to consider the implications of the story. God will accomplish his purpose using our strengths or our weaknesses. I think that's true. I really would rather he use my strengths. God, use my strengths. It ends so much better. I compare this story to Gideon. All right? And I'm not going to say Gideon was a really strong guy, but God used him in a strength way to accomplish his purpose, and it's just the opposite with Samson. The same work was accomplished by both men. One got the blessing and the other died in the end. Takeaway number two. The will of God which calls us to engage in the plan of God does not necessarily lead to great victories and accomplishments as we define success and accomplishment. You want some examples? Job. Jeremiah. Ezekiel. These were hard ministries. These were difficult. I think it was Ezekiel, God said, I'm going to send you to a people and they're not going to listen to anything you say. All right, what's the other option? Because that one doesn't sound like the one I want. When I think of this sermon... I think of my dad. My father's heart was to be a pastor. One of the speakers at the Basics Conference, for those men who went with us down to the Basics Conference a week ago, spoke about a lot of times in small churches, there's a crisis in the first year, there's a crisis in the third year, and everything ends between the fourth and fifth year, and they move on. As a young man, I, I, I led that life. What that model 
does not describe is the broken heartedness, the anguish of having people you genuinely love turn against you, mercilessly criticize you. I watched him try to come to terms with what must have felt like another failure. It had a profound impact upon me as a young man. And when I got to the ages of a teenager, I was certain that I did not want to be a pastor. And that's probably another story for another day. But I have often wished that my dad could have pastored a church like Countryside. Why did he have not have that opportunity? Why did I not have his experience? And then I realized that I don't think I would have had the patience and the faith to do what he did. We have no, this is the third takeaway. We have no business of determining the success or failure of what God has called us to do. Manoah and his wife went to their graves believing their great expectations had only become bitter disappointment. But some 1,200 years later, a man would put pen to paper and carried along by God's spirit, put Samson's name in the hall of faith. What God calls you to do, do it. Let him be the judge of what is success or failure. Be faithful to him. I'm going to ask uh, Luke, I think, is going to come up and help me with this closing song. Uh, if you'll stand with me, we're going to sing a simple chorus. I need you, Lord. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Let's try it again. Here we go. I need you, Lord, more than yesterday. More than words can say, I need you more. 
than ever before. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. And I need the verse. There we go. More than the air I breathe. More than the song I sing. More than the next heartbeat. More than anything. And Lord, as time goes by, well, I'll be by your side. Because I never want to go back to my old life. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you, Lord, more than words can say. Than ever before, need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. A couple of weeks ago, last time I preached, I ended our service with a song that I asked you to make as a prayer. I don't doubt, but some of you are going through hard times and would like to think that there's a light at the end of this tunnel, all right? So I'm going to challenge and encourage you. We're going to sing that chorus one more time. But if that's you, then sing it as a prayer. All right? Sing it as a prayer. I need you, Lord. More than yesterday, I need you, Lord. More than words can say, I need you. Than ever before, I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Father, we need your help and your presence. Let us live our lives for your kingdom, for your glory. Equip us to do that work that you've called us to with the strength to complete it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.